Father, we thank you that that stone is rolled away and that Jesus Christ is alive. That he's not just alive, he's alive as the God of heaven and earth reigning on the throne above. And Father, we ask that Jesus as our King, our sovereign Lord, would display his power in the midst of tragedy. Lord, for those individuals whose lives have been destroyed, who've lost family members, many, if not most, of whom have slipped into a Christless eternity, the greatest of all tragedies. Father, I pray that your people who are called by your name would be the hands and feet of Jesus, taking your love and your good news to those front lines. And I pray that people would be saved. Father, saved not just from this destruction and that rubble, but saved from an eternity in hell. Lord, I pray for the work of Jesus Christ, giving comfort and hope and power and resurrection life to those who've lost basically everything this world has to give. So God, work in Syria, work in Turkey, work among your people as your body there. And Father, we pray for North Florida Baptist Church. We pray for their pastor, our friend, Fayez Ayub and his wife, Kim. Lord, I thank you for them. Thank you for their faithfulness and steadfastness. Thank you for what a joy it is to know a man of God. And Lord, I pray you would renew them today, speak to their hearts and refresh them. Lord, I pray that, God, you would pour out your spirit upon them and their family. And I pray that Fayez, Lord, would step into this chapter of his life. As he returns home, I pray he would do so with the wisdom that only you can provide and the power of the resurrected Jesus. Do a great work in and through him and among those people. God, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. 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 If you have your Bibles Go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 11 as we are nearly finished with this verse-by-verse study of Daniel chapter 11. And as you go to Daniel 11, I want you to imagine with me that you had access to an old letter that you knew had been written in the 1600s. And as you begin to read that letter, you realize that it's filled with well over 100 predictions about the future of the United States of America. Keeping in mind, that's a nation that didn't even exist at the time that letter was written. It said things like the North and South will go to war and the president would be killed, that two presidents would be killed, and that two fathers who were in charge would have sons who would eventually take their place. Predictions like that over and over again about this nation that you know so well. And what if the biggest prediction in that letter was there at the very end, that it predicted events that would bring an end not only to that nation, but to the world as we know it. And what if inside that particular letter there was a plan? A plan that offered for your family, for you to be saved from destruction that would come at the end. Let me just ask you this. If you found a letter like that, would you want to read it? Oh, yeah. would, you, would you try to understand it? Would you lay it aside? You probably know some of the details even that I was referring to. You probably know that the North and South went to war. What do we call that? Civil War, right? We know about that. You probably know that there were two presidents who were killed. One right after or at the end of the Civil War, President Lincoln, but also President Kennedy. You might struggle, though, to remember that we've had two fathers who had sons who served as presidents. Anyone want to shout them out? The Adamses and the Bushes, John and John Quincy and George Herbert Walker and just George W. But listen, if you read a letter that had that kind of detail, 
it would become clear that this letter had the ability to predict the future. And I've got to imagine that once you were convinced that those historical details had been predicted well in advance, you would want to pay attention to that one big event that hadn't taken place yet, right? Okay, I'm going to take your word for that because if you have your Bibles open to Daniel 11, you're looking at a message just like the one I described. This chapter is part of a vision that God had given Daniel over 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And it includes, some scholars estimate, over 135 prophecies that have already been fulfilled in the history of this world. And you would think that just knowing that would make it a blast to study this section of the Bible. You need to know, most preachers avoid passages like this, like the plague. You know why? Because it's really hard to teach. It's hard to teach, it's hard to listen through because it's filled with historical details about a time in history that most everyone in this room is really unfamiliar with. As a matter of fact, when I started a verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel, everyone who knows about the book of Daniel has asked me the exact same question. What are you gonna do with chapter 11? And I said, skip it. Of course I'm going to skip it. What do you think I am, an idiot? But we don't skip hard passages of Scripture here, do we? No, because the whole Bible is the Word of God. And so since you said that you'd be thrilled to study a letter like this, I'm going to take it your word. And we're going to study a letter like this. And in order to do it, I'm going to have to give you a bit of a history lesson alongside a Bible study. And you need to know, I'm only going to touch the historical high notes so you'll have an idea of what's going on. And if you want to dig deeper into this and get to the 135 fulfilled prophecies, have at it. As a matter of fact, I will include a couple of links to websites on my notes that will be published on our website by Tuesday. And so feel free to go on. Look at those, let them begin an exciting journey of seeing God work. But with that in mind, let's pick up where we left off last week. The most difficult passage in our study of Daniel, and I've said that like four times already in this, but the most difficult passage to study in Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, let's look at verse two where we left off last week. And now, this is a vision being given to Daniel an angel is relaying it on behalf of Jesus. It says, and now I will show you the truth. I'll tell you the vision, the truth that's to come. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, so we saw in chapter 10 that Cyrus was the king in Persia at the time of this vision. And four kings after Cyrus was a man named Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. We talked about him when we studied Esther. He was the egomaniac who took Esther to be his wife. And just like this prophet, Prophecy describes he was rich, he was strong, and he launched a major offensive, a military campaign against Greece. So long before these events occurred, guys, God describes them in perfect detail. History records it happened just like God said it would. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen... 
His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Think north, south, east, west. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Okay, stop right there. This is referring to Alexander the Great of the Greek Empire. And just like this prophecy describes, he did whatever he wanted in the world. He was one of the greatest military leaders in the history of the nation and conquered the known world in less than a decade. Just think about that. From Europe over to Asia, he was able without planes, without cars, to conquer the known world and all of those nations and kingdoms in that area. But once he got to the top, he didn't live long, as this prophecy describes. He died, and his kingdom then was divided into four parts, the four winds, in in a sense. And those parts of the Greek empire went to Alexander's military leaders rather than his descendants, just like verse 4 prophesied about his posterity. So once again, history records it happened just like God said it would. Look at verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure But she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Okay, so two parts of Alexander's kingdom. Remember the four winds, north, south, east, and west? Well, two of those become particularly dominant during this age. Those kingdoms are referred to as north and south throughout the rest of this prophecy. The northern kingdom is known as the Seleucid Empire by history. It's located in Syria. The southern kingdom is known in historical realms as the Ptolemaic Empire, and it's located there in Egypt. And there was a little piece of land that was right in the middle of those two kingdoms, north and south. Can you guess what that land was? You're reading my notes, aren't you? It's right there in the, the kingdom of Israel. Guys, any time the north and the south would get into a fight, there's little Israel sitting right there in the middle of them. The conflict between these kingdoms would engulf the people of Israel for the rest of their histories of those kingdoms. It's basically like sitting in between your brothers in the back seat of the car. Any fight that broke out between them, you were in, whether you wanted to be or not, right? There, it's how Israel is, and that's why these prophecies are so pertinent to the Jewish people that Daniel was a part of. And at one part, this northern kingdom and the southern kingdom tried to form an alliance as it was described here in verses five and six. The southern king, a guy named Ptolemy II, Ptolemy's kind of like the family name of those rulers, he had a daughter named Bernice. And Bernice was sent to marry the king of the northern kingdom, Antiochus II Theos. They had a son together. And he was supposed to then become king and would unite these kingdoms. However, there was just a small problem. The northern king, Antiochus, had another wife before Bernice who did not take kindly to his new bride and their young son. And so she conspired to have all of them killed. Just like verse 6 predicts, Bernice and her husband and their son did not, quote, endure. Once again, history records it happened just like God said it would. Pick up in verse 9. And from a branch from her, Bernice's roots, 
one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. And he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Okay, so when verse seven says, a branch from her roots shall arise in this place, that's talking about someone from Bernice's family of origin. And here's what history tells us. History tells us that her brother, Ptolemy III, Eurygates, or however you pronounce that, took the throne of their father in the south. And in retaliation for her sister's, his sister's murder, he attacks the northern kingdom, right? And just like verse 8 says, he captures and loots the capital of the northern kingdom. He takes back all of their treasures to Egypt. And once again, we find history records it happened just like God said it would. You see a theme here? Let's keep going. Verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude but it shall be given into, it, it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, Away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Okay, so over the next 20 years or so, this battle just keeps going on. This is like the ancient Hatfields and McCoys we're watching here. Over and again, the kingdoms keep waging war on each other, and it escalates into the point where both sides amass these huge armies by ancient standards. According to the historian Polybius, the southern forces had 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elements, elements, elephants. Whew. Basically, elephants were like the ancient Sherman tanks of the world. Like if you had an elephant, you just imagine how strong you'd feel in a battle where there weren't guns and missiles and that stuff. If, just if you were riding a horse, right? Riding a horse would make you feel pretty strong. Can you imagine turning the corner and having to come up against a dude riding an elephant? That's what you do though. Let's go home, right? You just, let's get on home. That's got an elephant. I can't touch that. Well, you had 73 elephants there in the Southern kingdom. Well, in the Northern kingdom, there were 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry and 102 elephants. Huge multitudes of forces by ancient standards. And just like verse 13 predicts, the Northern kingdom prevailed. So once again, history records it happened just like God said it would. All right, let's keep moving. Verse 14. In those times, many shall arise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people. Remember, he's talking to Daniel, so he's talking about the Jews. Many among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops. For there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. And none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. 
And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, and he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Okay, so... Eventually throughout this history of the north and the south, verse 14 says there's a group of violent men from among the Jews who will lift themselves up, but they'll basically fall. Basically what's happening here is that a group of Jews we find in history, they got tired of being caught in between this skirmish of north and south. They were in the crossfire and living there and they were getting sick of it. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands and they actually joined forces with the king of the north, a guy named Antiochus III. And they joined together, but ultimately they failed even though they thought they were smart enough and strong enough to hatch a really good plan. But then after they failed, Antiochus tried to negotiate peace with the southern kingdom from Egypt, just like verse 17 says. He gave his daughter, a girl named Cleopatra, to the king of Egypt, Ptolemy V. He thought she would help him gain influence over Egypt, but just like verse 17 predicted, that plan did not work out to his advantage because she actually fell in love with her new husband and became loyal to him. Well, Antiochus III had nothing else to do but just go all out in war against the Egyptians then. And so he chases them all the way back to the Phoenician coast. They finally surrender there. And just like verse 18 says, Antiochus III turns his attention to these nations that lived across the coastline of the Mediterranean. So as he's making his way up the Mediterranean coast, the Roman Empire that's just north of them is starting to emerge as the new world power. They come down and confront Antiochus on his way back to his capital and they make him surrender a huge portion of his army, a significant part of his territory, and they make him swear to pay heavy taxes to the Roman Empire. Well, he's humiliated and he gets home and when he gets home, an angry mob kills him. Or as verse 19 puts it, he stumbled and fell. As he was going back home, he made some missteps, he stumbled, he fell, and was not to be found again. He was put to death. Guys, once again, history records it happened just like God said it would. Keep on going, verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Okay, so Antiochus' successor was a man named Seleucus IV Philippator. It's a great name if you're expecting a boy. I highly recommend it. Should be a tremendous bus ride on the way to school. He's known, though, for having appointed this very powerful kingdom tax collector who went around their kingdom, who who's trying to raise taxes to pay the Roman Empire from the guy who was ruling before him. Seleucus IV Philippator had a short reign because he was really, really unpopular. Like these verses said, he wasn't killed in battle or in anger. He was poisoned by, guess who? His tax collector. And you think our IRS is something suspicious. That's another point entirely. Here's what you're seeing there. History records it happened just like God said it would. And we're going to take a break. I got to stretch for just a second because this is really me, my, my, oh, you. Okay, my tongue's back. Verse 21. In this place, it says, shall arise a contemptible person 
to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Okay, so here in the history of this northern kingdom, Seleucus IV Philippator dies. His brother, a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, takes his place. Now, you may... Remember that name. Maybe you don't. But we talked a lot about this guy in chapter 8. And if you want to know more about him, I'm not going to tell you a whole lot this morning. You can go back to chapter 8 and study that on your own. But he called himself Epiphanes. He got to choose that part of his title. And that word means the illustrious one. He felt he was the manifestation of God on this earth. And listen, I'm not a psychologist, but I have diagnosed him as a bit of a narcissist. He thinks he is God to the world. And just like these verses describe He turns his attention back to the homeland of the Jews and he's terrible to them. One account tells us from history that he had 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children killed during his attack on Jerusalem. Here he is again. He's the primary person we see through the end of our text this morning. Verse 25, and he, Antiochus Epiphany, shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That's the covenant of God between his people and Israel. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Okay, so this talks about this new king from the south, this king of Egypt, Ptolemy VI. He tries to overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes, but Ptolemy's trusted advisors, the people who ate at table with him, verse 26 describes, they began to plot against him behind his back and they basically sell him out and he's taken captive by Antiochus Epiphanes. And while he's in prison, his brother becomes ruler of the Ptolemaic Empire. He's known as Ptolemy VII. These Egyptians were really, really creative on their names, right? Ptolemy VI replaced by Ptolemy VII. That caused Ptolemy VII to begin or six, to begin plotting with Antiochus Epiphanes to go back and overtake the Egyptian throne. That's why verse 27 says, these two kings will be bent on doing evil, but they don't succeed because they weren't actually plotting with one another. History tells us they were lying to each other. They were trying to deceive and use one another, or just as it says in verse 27, they spoke lies at the same table. Eventually, Ptolemy VI is released. He goes back to Egypt, forms an alliance with his brother, and once again, history records it happens just like God says it would. We're kind of in the home stretch. Look at verse 29 here. At the time appointed. Now, that's a really important phrase, guys. At the appointed time. 
Guys, that's a phrase the Bible uses to describe God's power and sovereignty. It was at the God-appointed time that Jesus was born, the Bible says. It was at the God-appointed time that Jesus was crucified. And it will be at the God-appointed time that Jesus will come again. This is a hint at what's taken place in all of this chaos among the kingdoms of this world. These are not just random events, this vision's telling us. They are all every detail under the sovereign power and plan of God and they only happen when they happen because God has appointed a time to allow it. God's sovereignty is on display right here and throughout this text. And then it says, at that appointed, God-appointed time, Antiochus Epiphanes tries to attack Egypt again. He's not successful. He's met by the troops of Katim. That's an ancient term for Cyprus, which was a stronghold of the emerging Roman Empire. They hear about his plan to go down to Egypt and they confront him and defeat him. And Antiochus is humiliated. He's enraged and he goes back to take his fury out on something. And that something is the nation of Israel and the Jews, the people of God's holy covenant. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this, forces from him and Tychus Epiphanes will appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Guys, we, we talked about this in great detail again in chapter eight, but Antiochus Epiphanes brought unthinkable persecution during this period of time in history to the Jews. He killed thousands of people. He went in and he took over the temple of God, that precious place where God's glory had been displayed on this earth. And he brings in a statue to the false god Zeus and he puts it in the most holy place. Then he brings in pigs and he sacrifices them on the altar in the month Chislev, which is our December, December 25th, ironically, 167 BC, he he makes an abomination sacrificing pigs on the altar in the holy of holies. And that makes that place desolate. The glory of God departs the house of God, just like is referred to there in verse 31. Again, history records it happened just like God says it would. Let's look at these last four verses of our text. He shall seduce with flattery. Think of that word. Flattery, he'll try to tell people there's something they're not, try to build them up in their own esteem. He tries to seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. Guys, this is the highlight of this section. Of this period of history, this is the highlight Even though persecution breaks out and is rampant, even though there's a wicked government overthrowing everything in its path and turning the world upside down, there is a remnant of God's people in a setting like that who stand firm. They refuse to bow to anyone but God. And guess what? They pay for it. They pay with the price of their own lives. 
Guys, this is, this is the, the counterpart to the stories we loved in Daniel. They were not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were thrown in a fire, they did not come out alive. They were burned and killed, this says. They were not rescued from the lion's den like Daniel. When the sword threatened them, it killed them. They lost their lives because they were faithful to the God of their covenant. And that would seem like an absolute tragedy. So why would I say this is the highlight and not the low point of this text? Well, verse 35 says something. It tells us about these people who lost their lives and held fast to the end. Here's what it tells us. It tells us this isn't the end of their story. You see it there? Their destiny Their destiny was not simply to remain faithful and die and be forgotten. They have a different destiny. Verse 35 says it's to be refined, purified, made white. They'll be redeemed in glory, it says, but they're dead. What's this talking about? Well, it says in verse 35, this will occur and wait to the time of the end, the appointed time. In other words, our sovereign God has a plan for them that will be fulfilled at the appointed time, the time of the end. It's referring to the end of the age when Jesus comes again. As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and skip ahead for just a minute to chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. But at that time, the appointed time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who, are sleep, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, remember what we just read in verses 32, 33, 34, 35. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever And ever, listen friend, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And those who trusted in God, those men and women who are really a part of history here, we just read their story. Their lives were as real as every other part of this text. And they entered a season when a wicked Ruler, a government that was godless, pressured people over and over again to bow their knee to the false gods of the age, and they would not bow. And they paid the price. They lost their lives. And this verse tells us there is a day when their story will continue. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will resurrect people to their eternal destiny. Some will be raised. Those whose names are written in the book of life, they will be raised to everlasting life. And the Bible says, though they washed their robes in blood on this earth, they will be made white and will shine like the stars of the heavens. They will be glorious forever. Their destiny wasn't death. It was glory. Eternal glory with Jesus. 
The end of their story is the appointed time of Christ's return when Jesus comes again. Now, I want to ask you this. We went all the way through that text because all of it's the word of God. And I just want to ask if every single detail, and there's a hundred more, believe it or not, that I didn't bring out of this text. But if every single detail, everything that God said would happen has happened just like God said it would, let me ask you, what does that mean for his promised destiny for those who trust in him? It means it will happen just like God says it will. Will Our God is sovereign and he isn't just predicting the future in this text. He's literally writing the future in this text. His prophecies aren't just predictions. They are promises. And we have just seen in vivid detail all of the promises of our sovereign God will be fulfilled just like he said no matter what. And guys, that gives us our big idea for this morning. Because God is sovereign, the destiny of his people is as certain as the history of this world. Because God is sovereign, the events he has said will take place will take place as certainly as the events that have already taken place. Listen to me, friend. I don't know every detail of your life. I don't know everything that your future is going to hold. No doubt, no doubt living in a godless world with kingdoms that are opposed to the godly ideologies and truths of the scripture, no doubt your life and future will hold conflicts and setbacks and they will be disappointments and there will be hardship. You are living in a world at war. And some of you are living in that place even as I speak. I don't know the pain and sorrow of your past history or your present reality, but hear the good news for you today in a world that's upside down. God is sovereign. He is in control. He is working out a perfect plan that doesn't depend on the kingdoms of this world. God's plan doesn't depend on Washington, D.C. And can I get a witness? You kidding me? You want to know the other good news? God's plan doesn't depend on you or me either. God's plan depends on God's power. Done and done. And when everything is said and done, the history of this world is going to show that even though God's people, we, will have lived through hardship and conflict on every level, spiritual, political, social, physical. Our destiny is not defined by this present age. Our destiny is glory with Jesus. Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he will right every wrong. He will heal every wound. He will redeem and restore every one of his children, including you. So rejoice today. The story is an over. History, his story has yet to be fulfilled and is still unfolding. And guess what? Jesus is coming again. And it might be today. And in the moments we have remaining, I, I want to show you how this vision teaches us to live in light of that truth. 
You see, I kind of went over that quickly, getting through those historical details. But as we read that passage, you may have noticed there are only two references in that 35 verses of the vision that describe the response of the Jews. It's all happening right there. They're caught in the crossfire the whole time. For hundreds of years, these conflicts are going, but only two references to how they actually lived in the midst of that conflict. And those two responses actually teach us two totally different ways to live in this world. There's a wise way to live. There's a foolish way. And we see both displayed in this text. Quickly, I just want to show them to you. First, we see that wise people turn to God. Daniel eleven thirty two and 33 says this. He, meaning Antiochus Epiphanes, this evil ruler, shall seduce with flattery. Notice that phrase, flattery. Those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Guys, this is a description of those Jews who resisted the pressure of a wicked culture, a wicked leader who are who is calling them, seducing them to turn their backs on God. And it says they are wise. Since they don't turn their backs on God, what's that mean? It means they turn their face to God. They turn to God in wisdom and trust in him as God. And notice what this verse describes that wisdom to look like. It it looks like it means intimacy. It says they know their God. They have a relationship with him. And the truth of the gospel, friend, is that Jesus came so that we could have an intimate relationship with God. See, all of us have sinned, all of us have actually fallen for the lies of this world and turned our back on God. That's what sin is. And our sin separates us from God. But Jesus came in our place. He lived a perfect life we failed to live. And just like Michelle got to picture for all of us today, he not only died, but he rose again from the dead. Paying the price for our sin, he rose to glorious power in his resurrection so that not only would he give his life for us, he could live his life through us. If you'll trust in Jesus, the Bible says you'll be restored and forgiven by God and Christ himself by his spirit will live in you. You can live in intimacy with God through the work of Jesus, communing with God in prayer and worship, hearing his voice in his word. That's how then our destiny is changed from destruction to glory through intimacy with God. Friend, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I don't know when the appointed time for your end will be. It could be today. And the Bible says that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved from the destruction that is to come. Are you trusting in Jesus? And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, call on Jesus to save you today. Do not leave this place without knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, at the close of the service, I'll be down front with our other pastors and prayer partners. We would love to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. You can have an intimate relationship with God today by trusting in the work of Jesus. Wise people turn to God in intimacy. They know him. But it also means that they, they have insight into him. That word wise in this passage that describes these Jews who were faithful, that word wise is sometimes translated insight. It simply means that you see into the truth. You have sight into the truth. And remember, the people who had this insight, 
It says, were the people who resisted the seduction of flattery. In other words, they didn't allow the wickedness of the time, the culture, age they lived in, to convince them that they were something they were not, that they were strong enough to live in their own power so that they didn't need to depend on the God who made a covenant with them. They didn't fall for that. They had insight into the truth. So the truth they had insight into was this. They weren't strong enough. Only God is strong enough. Only God can do what only God can do. And wise people don't fall for the, dis, the, the seduction of God's enemy. They don't believe the lies of the world. That's why they don't turn their back on God. They really believe that only God can do what only God can do in hardship, in conflict, in pain, in disappointment. Only God can do what only God can do. So wise people turn to God in intimacy with that insight. And that actually brings us the second way to live. Wise people turn to God, but number two, foolish people take matters into their own hands. Daniel eleven fourteen, 14, in the middle of this vision says this, and the violent among your own people, now look at this phrase, it's really important, shall lift themselves up. Remember that seduction of flattery that lifted them up through those lies? These are the people who fell for that kind of lie. They lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. This is another group of people, and they aren't wise. They're fools. They're supposed to be trusting in the covenant promises of God. They would have known things like Isaiah 41.10, where God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. They would have known those truths that God had promised, but they turned their back on truth. And instead of trusting God to do what he said, they got caught up in the chaos of the kingdoms of this world And they began to buy the lies our world was selling and they took matters into their own hands. And I wanna ask you this, what trouble in your life today are you tempted to take into your own hands? What problems are you trying to solve by your own power? Will you hear the word of God? Those who take matters into their own hands are lifting themselves up in pride as though they can do what only God can do and the vision is still the same. They shall fail. Friend, you need to hear something and I need to say it. You can't save America. You can't save your prodigal. You can't save your marriage. You can't save yourself. Only God can do what only God can do. So don't take matters into your own hands. Don't form alliances with godless ideologies. Don't fall for the lie that we always have to choose the lesser of all evils. Lay it down before the Lord. Take him at his word and believe that God can do what only God can do and he will do all he's promised for those who trust in him. Let me just ask you this in closing. What would it look like for you today if you brought the struggles of your life to Jesus And you trusted him to work in those places and just laid it down before him. What would it look like if you took the place of your heart that's keeping you up at night and waking you in the morning and you just laid it down and said, Jesus, only you can do what only you can do in this. Help me 
trust you. Help me to live with wisdom by turning to you in prayer, by hearing from you in your word, and by not taking matters into my own hands. Some of you right now just need to lay it down and see God as God. Because God is God and you are not. And because our God is sovereign, your destiny is as certain as the history of this world. So keep looking to God today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for this church family. Lord, it isn't lost on me that you've allowed this group of people to come and to dig into a really hard passage of the Bible. And I praise you that they've done it and they do it every week because you're stirring in us a confidence that the Bible is the word of God. So Lord, thank you. And Father, I pray that your word in our lives would be taken by the Holy Spirit and applied in the way that only you can. So Lord, I pray for those who've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, that right now, right now in this moment, they would call on Jesus. And in faith, they would believe that he lived a perfect life they couldn't live and died a death on a cross they should have died as a payment, a punishment for their own sin. Pray in faith, they would pray, Lord, that they believe that Christ raised from the dead by his power and will raise them up to to live a brand new life. May they call on Jesus to save them. And Lord, I pray for those who are trusting in Christ but are being tempted day after day, problem after problem to take matters into their own hands. Lord, I pray we would lay it down. Lord, help us to live with confidence that only you can do what only you can do and you will do every single thing you've promised to do for the glory of your name and the good of your people. May we lay it down and be glad that you are our God. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.